loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired to create a deeper life to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. I'm going to start a little differently today. Um, Yesterday marked 500,000 deaths from COVID um, since we started these numbers over a year ago now. That's unbelievable, isn't it? Yesterday, President Biden held a memorial, and I thought that the remarks he made were particularly relevant to this show because he's a person, he's also a president, but he's a person who's had quite extreme grief in his life. And I thought I'd start today by sharing an edited version, I just cut out some of it for time, but uh, an edited version of what he said, because I've been doing a lot of talking about COVID on this show because it's so relevant to the subject of grief, loss, and transformation. And I just wanted to share this today. This will be Biden. Today, we mark a truly grim, heartbreaking milestone, 500,071 dead. That's more Americans who've died in one year in this pandemic than in World War I, World War II, and the Vietnam War combined. That's more lives lost to this virus than any other nation on Earth. But as we acknowledge the scale of this mass death in America, we remember each person and the life they lived. I was at the Pfizer vaccine manufacturing facility, and I met a man whose father-in-law was dying of the virus. He was sad. I asked if I could call his father-in-law. He said his father-in-law was too sick to speak, but then he said, but could I pray for him? We often hear people described as ordinary Americans. There's no such thing. There's nothing ordinary about them. As a nation, we can't accept such a cruel fate. While we've been fighting this pandemic for so long, we have to resist becoming numb to the sorrow. We have to resist viewing each life as a statistic or a blur or on the news. And we must do so to honor the dead, but equally important, care for the living and those left behind. For the loved ones left behind, I know all too well. I know what it's like to not be there when it happens. I know what it's like when you're there holding their hands. There's a look in their eye and they slip away. That black hole in your chest, you feel like you're being sucked into it. The survivor's remorse, the anger, the questions of faith in your soul. For some of you, it's been a year, a month, a week, a day, even an hour. And I know that when you stare at that empty chair around the kitchen table, it brings it all back. No matter how long ago it happened, as if it just happened that moment, you looked at that empty chair, birthdays, anniversaries, holidays, and the everyday things, the small things, the tiny things that you miss the most. That scent when you open the closet, that park you go by that you used to stroll in, that movie theater where you met, the morning coffee you shared together, the bend in a smile, the perfect pitch to her laughter. So many of the 
rituals that help us cope, that help us honor those we loved, haven't been available to us. The final rites with family gathered around, the proper homegoing showered with stories and love, tribal leaders passing without the final traditions of sacred cultures on sacred lands. For me, the way through sorrow and grief is to find purpose. I don't know how many of you have lost someone a while ago and are wondering, is he or she proud of me now? Is this what they want me to do? I know that's how I feel. And we can find purpose, purpose worthy of the lives they lived and worthy of the country we love. Remember those we lost and those who are left behind. I share that because we're all experiencing a kind of a global grief that certainly for my lifetime is unprecedented. And the sheer numbers do tend to, to numb us. Today I am not feeling numb at all because it's the third anniversary of my mother-in-law's death. And um, she was so, so, so very dear to me. And mother-in-law is an important phrase given that uh, for, for many, many years, I couldn't be in law with anyone <laughs> who I was married to. So um, I'm thinking of her, and I'm thinking of my sister-in-law, Amy, who also died, and died of something relevant to my, my guest today. <clears throat> um, her name is Elaine Zimmerman, and I see she just joined us. <laughs> Hi, Eileen, sorry. Um, and I, I, yes, I do see you there. <laughs> um, the reason Amy's death is relevant is that she died of um, complications from an addiction to painkillers. And you'll find out how that's relevant in just a moment. Today I'm welcoming Eileen Zimmerman. She's a journalist and licensed social worker. For three decades, she's written about business, technology, and social issues for a wide array of national magazines and newspapers. She was a columnist for the New York Times for eight years, and since 2004 has been a regular contributor to the newspaper. Today we'll be talking about her first re memoir released earlier this month, Smacked, a story of white-collar ambition, addiction, and tragedy. Welcome, Eileen. Thanks for having me. I'm so happy to have you. I, I really um, was so, so moved by your book, uh, and I guess it's obvious a little bit why. Um, my sister-in-law was a healthcare worker. She injured herself on the job. And um, once she could not work and really couldn't do much of anything, she really, really went downhill. And so this, this story of um, people in the professions who have been touched by addiction, as your ex-husband was, of course, deeply moves me for personal reasons, as well as just being in the grief field. Um, but maybe we can start with you sharing a bit of your story that led to the book um, for the listeners so they know kind of the beginning of your your pathway to this book and this day. Sure, I'm happy to. So um, 
I was married for 20 years to a guy named Peter who was, uh, had become over the years a very successful attorney at a very sexy Silicon Valley-based law firm. And we lived in Southern California at the time. He was a, one of the founding members of the San Diego office. He was a patent lawyer, rose to partner. And um, we wound up separating and divorcing uh, because as a lawyer, he worked all the time. And the, it's very difficult to make a marriage work. That's why I think there's a lot of divorce among lawyers at his level. He certainly had a lot of colleagues on second and third marriages. And fell victim to that too. But um, about three years after we separated, we were still very connected. We had two kids together we were raising and his behavior became very odd. His appearance changed dramatically. Um, he was about 25 pounds, 20 pounds overweight when we split up. Five years later, he had lost like 50 pounds. He, mm -hmm. he had been running marathons, but he was no longer able to. He was constantly sick with this low-grade flu he was always having trouble breathing. Could He went from running marathons to he couldn't run more than two miles. And he said he was smoking a lot because of stress. I thought that was it. I thought he was just drinking a lot. I thought he was taking a lot of ambient things to try to sleep and stay awake. Just figured he was living an unhealthy lifestyle. So this accelerated and accelerated until in 2015, my, my kids had tried to spend the weekend and he'd been in the bedroom all weekend as he had been doing for months and months saying he was too sick to come out. And I went up to his house to find him and take him to the hospital. I just decided enough was enough. My kids had reported that he was very, very sick that weekend, vomiting, you know, barely conscious. And when I got to his house um, and we were close enough that we had keys to each other's houses because we, you know, we were friends after all those years. We'd known each other almost 30 years. Um, I found that he had died on the bathroom floor of his mm -hmm. bedroom. And from that horrible revelation at the time, I thought he died from a heart attack from working too hard. Turned out he was an intravenous drug abuser and died from an infection related to that abuse, although he was in a greatly weakened state from the infection and from so much drug use. Um, and that led me on a quest to kind of figure out what happened to him. And as I unraveled his story and when he started using, how he got into it, who he met, I looked into the wider story of white collar substance use and abuse, especially in the legal profession, because he was a lawyer and it's a particularly punishing profession. Mm -hmm. But as you know, there are lots of high stress white collar professions like finance, technology, medicine. And, um, and that led me uh, first to do a story for the New York Times in 2017 called The Lawyer, The Addict, which I thought... It was running in the Sunday business section. I figured it would get some traction with business readers. Turned out that it hit a nerve with the entire readership. It became very widely shared in the 60th most read story that year in the whole paper. And that led me to my memoir, Smacked, which was a book I wrote after that story, realizing I received a lot of emails and notes from people that there were a lot of people like me. And whereas I had felt so alone before and ashamed this, that this happened to our family, turned out there were a lot of people suffering and a lot of people wrote me and it was a really wonderful thing to connect with so many people. And also I realized that there was a larger story to tell. So I did, I wrote a memoir which talks about our early relationship and then kind of chronicles Peter's decline as I unravel it. So it's almost like a mystery because you're finding it along with me what happened. And then I did some reporting on the use of drugs and alcohol in white collar professions and um, what's kind of coming for the generation now that will someday be the next generation of these white collar professionals like lawyers and scientists and technologists and bankers. The pressure hasn't gone down. I, uh, you know, I, all my, all my uh, daughters are in professional situations and 
you'd think COVID would have reduced the pressure somewhat, but the people who kept their jobs have been under a lot of pressure (laughs) this year. So it touches me on that score too, that what do people do when they're under a lot of pressure they can't get out of? Uh, And of course, some people figure out how to kind of ramp up the self-care and do that, but most of us are not prepared to do that if we haven't had the experience. Maybe you can share that piece of your book from the um, from the prologue because one thing that touches me about your book is uh, something that gets lost is um, relationships that maybe society doesn't qualify as grief-worthy, one of which being ex- exes. Um, you know, it can be very... Um, disenfranchising because of course that's a big deal I've lost some people that I used to date just date not be married to you know (laughs) everyone understands somewhat you know my my first partner died that's people get that that's grievous but another ex died of cancer another of of a drug overdose and it really affects you Because you've been intimate with those people. So I appreciate that your relationship with your husband and all of its permutations was part of the book. And then it gave it some context. Otherwise, I think people often think you were divorced. Why did you care? But it's like. But that's exactly the point I'm making. That, of course, you care because you've been connected to that person. And also, once they die, kind of all the troubles of the world are in a different context. (laughs) <laughs> they they tend to wash off a little bit or at least yeah. be in a different perspective. So maybe you can share that beginning um, moment of this this path that took you to this book. Is it from the prologue? Yes. Okay. Um, it starts July 11th, 2015. I plug in the code to the gate at Peter's house and the door swings open to an expansive rectangular backyard. The grass is mostly brown, the $20,000 fountain in the center no longer burbling, its white stones covered in algae. I go to the front door and put my key in the lock. It's made of heavy glass and makes a whooshing sound as it opens, like the door to an office building. There's a staircase immediately in front of me that leads to the main floor, and to my right is the only room downstairs. It was intended to be a family room or a rec room and has a glass wall facing the yard. I always thought it would be a great place for a party. Now it's been converted to a bedroom for our daughter, Anna, who is home from college for the summer. She stays here at her dad's house a few nights a week. Down here, she has more independence as well as her own bathroom. The bed is unmade, clothes and a bath towel litter the floor. Anna hasn't been here in two days. Neither has our son, Evan. I call out, Peter? No answer, no sound from upstairs. Peter, are you here? I climb the stairs to the main floor. It's perfectly quiet and still. I take a minute to look around. The house is an architectural trophy made of steel, wood, and glass, all sharp angles and sunlight. Through the windows, I can just make out a white line of sea foam hitting the beach. I turn toward the kitchen. On the counter to my right, there is a large, nearly empty takeout soda, the kind you get at a convenience store. Some candy wrappers, piles of work paper, an asthma inhalator. Peter has been sick for more than a year with some kind of ongoing low-grade flu, constantly exhausted and weak. He's lost 30 pounds, maybe more, since we split up five years ago. But in the last six months, it's gotten worse. My kids say he sleeps the whole weekend when they are here, forgets to grocery shop, never makes meals. 
He doesn't seem to be going into the office much. The last time Anna and Evan were here, two days ago, their dad could barely lift his head off the pillow. Evan tried to take him to the hospital, but Peter refused, got angry, and snapped at him. Then he vomited onto the bedroom floor, threw a washcloth over it, and went back to bed. No one has been able to reach Peter since Thursday morning. I have come here to check on him, to make sure he is okay, and take care of him if he isn't. I turn down the hallway where the bedrooms are located. Peter, I call again. Peter, I'm coming down the hall to your bedroom, okay? His bedroom is at the end of the hallway. Its door faces me and it's open, but I can't see anything past except a corner of the bed and a cluttered night table. I, was, I walk past my son's bedroom with its one orange wall and Ikea bed, past Anna's old bedroom, one wall painted deep pink and another wallpapered in a forest of black trees with little blackbirds resting on branches. Someone has cut out a silhouette of a rat and pasted it onto a branch. I am nearly at his door and start calling his name again in earnest. Peter? Peter? I can see into the room. I'm coming into your room, Peter. I'm here to check on you. The covers on his bed are drawn back, and I can see the crumpled white sheets. There are a few tissues on the bed with spots of blood on them. I'm starting to shake badly as I walk into the bedroom. Peter isn't in the bed, so I turn toward the master bath. Then I see him, lying face up on the floor between the bathroom and the bedroom. I stand there, unable to really understand what I'm seeing. My mind is struggling to comprehend this. That's him? What's that on his face? There's a cardboard box under his head like a pillow. I walk over and kneel down next to him. His right arm is bent at the elbow and resting on his chest, a gesture he often makes, even when he is standing up. He holds his arm that way when he's making a point, pressing his thumb and first two fingers together for emphasis. Our son does the same thing. I touch Peter's arms to shake him awake. They are stiff and hard to move. His fingernails are blue. I put my hand on his chest to try and feel his heart. I suddenly remember lying in our bed when we were married, spooning, my chest up against his back, especially when I was cold or couldn't sleep. I would listen for his heartbeat, so much slower and stronger than mine, and feel safe. Now, I feel nothing. It's so, it's so, um, I mean, I'm imagining my way into that moment, having been with people who've died, but to me, the, the shock and horror of expecting to find someone who needs help and then instead finding someone who's died, um, it, it's, it's overwhelming. Um, let's talk about that when we get back from our break. Let's start from there because uh, that, that moment, I thought you cam- captured the, the kind of shock reaction so well. Um, and, um, I want to talk a little more about it when we get back. Listeners, you'll find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America to find all the links and, uh, join my email list. And to find Eileen Zimmerman, you can go to EileenZimmerman.com and that's spelled E-I-L-E-N-E Zimmerman.com. Be back soon. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. 
What sets apart VoiceAmerica.tv from the other video content providers on the Internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main VoiceAmerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Be sure to like the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel on Facebook. You'll find great health tips from the experts. Find out more about your favorite shows and talk back to our team. Search Voice America Health or click the like button under the player today. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring Better Help. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. Listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Eileen Zimmerman about her recently released memoir, Smacked. And Eileen, uh, I was, I was thinking a lot. I have children who have parents I'm not with, <laughs> you know, uh, children of divorce, I guess, um, yeah. children with, with, uh, they're all grown, but, um, and I should say, and there's still intersections. Uh, between me and these other parents in their lives. And I was identifying with you going and uh, going into your ex-husband's home really for your children um, and the awkwardness of that, that I, I, I could imagine that you rarely, if ever, just came in the house without him inviting you or you know um no, that, that had to be a very rare event it it wasn't yeah usually I didn't need to go in because my kids were um they were they weren't grown but they were 16 and 18 so even if I for some reason needed to drop them off if they weren't driving I didn't need to walk them in when he had first moved in I would sometimes I would often walk them in and he but he was home and he'd say oh you know come on in and um and it felt still felt very odd because it was his house and it had a particular smell that reminded me of him. And I think reminded me of the fact that we were not together, mm. you know? And so we had this family that was kind of split apart, but it was very odd walking in his house. That's why I kept saying, I'm here, I'm here. Are you there? Because I think up until the moment I saw that he had died, I thought he was going to be angry at me for coming into his house and waking him up potentially and stuff. And that's that really stood out in the in the whole lead up to his death. 
you know, the lies and the anger. Um, when you tried to say, what's going on? You or your children tried to say, what's going on that you'd get back lies or anger? Exactly. That's such a good summation. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that just connects so much to me with with uh, with people I've known who've gone through addiction. That that's that you kind of throw at the book at people to keep them from discovering what's actually happening. That's exactly right. There's a saying, you know, how can you tell? I I I don't like to use the word just the addict because it's a person that struggles with an addiction. They're not just that. But there's a joke that says, how can you tell if an addict is lying? And it's like his lips are moving. (laughs) I mean, and it's true. I mean, I think Peter became so adept for a while at just coming up with excuses. He knew I would, I would believe, I would believe he was stuck in a meeting. He left his phone in the car. You know, he went over time with a client he couldn't get out of. I mean, he had a really stressful job in life. Um, So he just got really good at lying or hurling anger back at me you know how dare I you know investigate his life or question his decisions that kind of thing and also it's a bit like you know the frog in the in the cold water that that slowly boils where uh, to me his lies got more and more preposterous and more and more hurtful but kind of if you've been lied to that way and kind of invited into this alternative reality for long enough I think the mind sort of says, well, maybe that is true. And poor him that he has to work that hard, right? Right. And and also, it was set up that way from the get-go. I mean, his job always came first. And if I ever, you know, were to complain or push back, like, you're not spending time with us, you're not with, you know, he would say, well, somebody's got to pay the mortgage, you know. And I mean, I was working too, (laughs) but but I (laughs) Couldn't compete with his income, and it did. It supported our life in an expensive city, and it, but it was also a life that he wanted. Um, but he would he there is a you know there it's a complicated thing when it's you know money like that. And so I didn't push back, and he was working all the time, and I knew he felt that he was under a lot of pressure. So it was easy to accept those lies as the truth. And I think mm-hmm. if I'm honest, I had little incentive to see the truth. I needed him to be well because we needed him as a family to be. Earning, earning a living, he didn't need to be earning it at the level he was, and to be okay. Um, and it was hard to yeah. imagine it wouldn't be. He always was. Uh, I feel we need to throw in here how unhappy. I've had a lot of lawyers in therapy with me, and, and I, <laughs> I have to tell you that they usually leave the the high level practice of law. Oh, they do. If they stick with therapy, they tend to leave the law. I almost give people a disclaimer now. (laughs) (laughs) To leave your job. (laughs) Yeah. You know, we don't know where this goes. Um, It gets hard to be under that much pressure and to be using your brain to connive in a way. Yeah, that's a very good And... it, it occurred to me that this whole buying lots of things, uh, getting the big house by the beach that he didn't have any time to enjoy, really. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. know, all of those things, they're a, a, a teacher of mine, Stephen Levine. Uh, he was addicted to heroin when he was very young. And he used to say it was his homesickness for God, um, yeah. which he used broadly. But this kind of nothing filled the, the ache. Exactly. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, it, that's how I felt hearing about Peter. Nothing filled the ache. That's um, 
That's a beautiful way to put it. I think that was true. I don't know that he understood that, but nothing was ever enough. Mm. Yeah. And that leads to such frustration because here you've got resources, Mm -hmm. which they've done studies. It doesn't make people happier to have a ton of money. It doesn't. After a certain (laughs) point, it's... Um, But then it's more odd that you don't feel happy. Like, shouldn't you feel happy? (laughs) And I think that that also was in my mind. I thought, like, you know, I couldn't imagine he would... It didn't even seem like a possibility that he would turn to, to... the drugs, especially intravenous drug abuse, it was like this guy's got everything he wanted, you know. But I guess, I guess he didn't. Absolutely. Well, he lost all of you in a sense. He did. He did. Yeah. Would you read the ne- this this next excerpt from your book about, you know, because your children were still so young? Of course, then you're responsible for wrapping everything up. I don't know if that was. Um, the only option or the best option, well, but the only, I mean, he, his family was in Buffalo and on, uh, and we had a will together, but it was done when we were mar- first married. So the next of kin would have been my daughter who was 18 and going back to college and to settle in a state in the, in the disarray that the state of disarray that his was in, um, you know, she, she couldn't do it. And she was afraid. She was like, I, I don't, I don't want to not go back to college. And everybody agreed, you know, she, she couldn't do it. She was too young. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't in her best interest. And I wanted it settled. So it was the best it could be for my children. And I felt like I had right. their best interest at heart. And, and also I wanted to settle it for Peter. I felt very bad that I hadn't seen what was happening. And this felt like a way to, in some crazy way to make amends and make it right as right as I could make it. So you know, that that makes absolute perfect sense to me. And whew, that's a lot to have to oh, gosh, delve into the, the details. So will you will you um, share that that piece about um, one part of it, which is packing up his home? Right. So this is immediately after he died, because he was in touch with a lot of dealers, drug dealers, uh, an attorney that's a friend of mine who's in Trustin Estate said, go up to his house and get anything of value, sentimental or otherwise, out of there because you don't know if people are going to come by looking for stuff, you know, try to break into the house now that they know he's, he's died. So here we are, we're a day after he has, he has been found dead with me and my, uh, my two kids. I have brought boxes and bags into which we can load items we want to take today. Anna wants to go start in the master bedroom, but I don't want her to see the bathroom floor, which I know is stained with blood and feces and vomit and urine, all in the vague outline of her father's body. But she is becoming frantic to get in there, to get as close to Peter as she can. I I should mention, we actually, I had a friend with me named William helping us um, clean out the house. So William says he will go in first to remove anything she shouldn't see. I start to walk in with him, but my body thinks Peter is in there. And for the first time in my life, I know what it means to have your knees buckle. It's as if my kneecaps change from a solid to a liquid, the rubbery tendons and ligaments bowing outward. I don't fall as much as I crumple down. Mom, mom, Anna screams, thinking I'm fainting. I'm okay, I'm okay, I say, but I don't go into the bedroom. William tells Anna it is okay to come in. She races to Peter's dresser, which sits below a window overlooking the backyard. Before I left yesterday, I pulled down the shade so that the neighbors with a back porch that allows a clear view into this bedroom can't see the disaster in here. From my perch in the hallway, I can see both the dresser and Anna. 
She's pulling shirts off the floor and out of drawers, putting each one to her face and inhaling to see which shirts still retain the smell of her father. Those are the precious ones, the ones she's jamming into empty bags and boxes. She buries her head in each piece of, in each piece of clothing, grabbing at anything Peter might have worn or touched. She wants everything, dirty or clean, on the floor, in the hamper, lying in a heap under the bed. She wants all of it, every scrap. She's like a starving person, desperate for whatever crumbs were left behind. Evan is in the living room and kitchen, wandering around, opening cabinets and drawers as if seeing the house and its contents clearly for the first time. Anna tells him to come in and grab some clothes. No, that's okay, just take what you want, he says loudly from the living room. Then Anna insists. No, Evan, come in and take some things for yourself. You're going to want to keep some of this. Evan ignores her. He is not going in there. So she grabs a few t-shirts for him. I already know he'll never wear any of it, that it will sit in a drawer or a box somewhere because it can't be thrown out, but it can't be worn either. William emerges with boxes full of things like expensive stereo speakers, notebooks, cameras, all kinds of electrical and USB cords, an iPad, and Peter's work bag. Inside the bag is $1,000 in cash, a pill bottle with no label, an Advil bottle. Both bottles contain a variety of different colors and shaped pills. There are three slim silver tubes of scar cream, individually packaged alcohol wipes, and tiny clear plastic tubes I have never seen before. Later, I will learn they are plastic needle caps, presumably from hypodermic needles that were used at the office. There is a small spiral notebook with what looks like notations about daily injection times and dosages of tramadol, an opioid painkiller, and cocaine, a combination usually referred to as a speedball. Peter was able to organize himself to get drugs, but not anything else. Hmm. Hmm. One of a uni-focused brain. <laughs> and, and for good reason. He was so sick. Uh, when he wasn't using that, it became a desperate need to get the drugs just to, to get, get, yes, yeah, that kind of hyper-focus. So, uh, you know, it's funny how over the years I've come to feel lucky for a certain number of things in my loss, um, including, I, I wouldn't say it was traumatic when my wife died. Okay. Um, it was just death. <laughs> oh, no, that's that's very true, right? And so, adding what what I was so aware of in the book for you and for your children, and anyone who cared about him really, but mostly the three of you, is the is the indistinguishable the way in which trauma and loss can't be differentiated. Um, that yeah. there's they're they're kind of fused together. Uh, and I feel as if that part of the book sort of captures that, you know, how do you, how do you pull apart the traumatic nature of his death from the grief you'd all have if he died some other way? I don't it's think it can a, be done. Wonderful observation. I hadn't thought of that before, but it's true. It's like, it wasn't a normal death. It certainly wasn't a peaceful death. And so for us, it really became connected, this traumatic thing and this loss. It still is, yeah. Yeah, even even in the um, you 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 know really share a lot of details about um, the police being there, the grief counselors being there, and while they were, 
I'll, I'll hear your opinion in a section, second. They, it feel to me, felt to me like they were trying. They yeah, were tr- <laughs> but it also felt to me like there was such a, a deep miss. I don't know if you felt that way. You mean a deep miss in, in their efforts? Yes, in the sense that it was so traumatic and they were so calm. They were so <laughs> And I just thought like they must have seen everything because to me it felt like a tornado just, you know, and, and they were trying. I think it helped my son. I think my daughter was so upset and angry and just in shock. She had, she didn't even understand their presence. She was sort of like, why are they so calm? Why, what, you know, why, why is this their business? Like she felt very violated by outside people being in a, in a situation that felt intensely private to her. They were a great example of how different people grieve differently, weren't they? Yeah. I mean, just right off the bat. <laughs> they still are. <laughs> of course. I think that's the, the very nature. <laughs> yeah, there was, there's a, a, a part of your book um, we may even talk about later, but uh, or have you read from later, but, um, you know, you as many people know something about Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. Yeah. Uh, and interestingly, most people think there's these stages and you go in order and all of that. That was actually not her idea. <laughs> I know she, I understand that, yes. She, she was basically more like you are, like it's all mixed up and you're going a million directions at once. Uh, I, I once interviewed her son, which I've mentioned before on the show, and asked him why she used the word stages. And he said, well, she was new to the country and her English wasn't that great. And she oh. and she went to the dictionary, <laughs> and, <laughs> wow. and I thought, oh my gosh, this overlay for decades and decades, right, exactly. on what people think grief is like that she didn't ever believe. It was never what she That's thought. So. I, mean, I remember feeling like something was wrong with my ability to grieve because I wasn't going through those stages, you know? Oh, that's so good. Absolutely. I mean, that those feelings may come into it, right? Yeah, <laughs> the anger, absolutely. all that. But um, including the, the denial you felt right at the start, but it's definitely not in order. It's all mixed up. So <laughs> I thought I thought I should tell you that. <laughs> I was so relieved to hear there was actually a story to it because when if you read her whole grief book, she never implies that it goes in order or anything. She doesn't. I just figured I was missing something. Anyway, we'll talk more when we get back from our break. And and listeners, you can go to my website, weatheringgrief.com or the Good Grief host, host page. And to find Eileen Zimmerman, go to eileenzimmerman.com, E-I-L-E-N-E, zimmerman.com. Back soon. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent 
inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision-making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I've been talking with Eileen Zimmerman, author of Smacked. And before the break, Eileen, we were kind of talking about the way in which trauma and and death can get very um, fused together to the point where you can't really tell what is the traumatic part and what is the just the grief part. Um, and it seems as if you were certainly aware of the trauma because, and I'd, I'd love for you to talk about this some, you did do a lot of EMDR, which if people don't know about that, it is a technique for dealing with trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, so it seems as if you had an awareness that trauma was different from just loss. Can you talk about that some? Yes, it's interesting. I actually didn't. I went to, uh, right after Peter died, I felt like I had to get my kids into grief counseling because they were suffering and struggling so badly. And I searched, you know, psychology today and I asked my old therapist, you know, grief therapist, and I found um, a a couple of therapists that were really good. And one um, saw my son and my daughter very briefly, and then she left for college and they did, she gave me a pamphlet. And she said, I think you might want to consider doing this. And I thought, what is this thing having to do with your eyes? I want grief counseling. Like, you know, <laughs> I had no idea. And that's when she introduced the idea that there was a, it was a traumatic death. And it was traumatic both for Peter and for us. And that's when I, I understood that it was connected in that way. And um, an EMDR is especially good for adults that experience one trauma, like a one big trauma, like a car accident, a murder, this kind of death. Um, It's very good at helping reprocess the memories of that. So it was very, very helpful. Yeah, some people consider it kind of this um, fringe or outlandish thing, mostly people that aren't in the field. But actually, it's it's just quite effective with trauma. And especially if somebody is kind of holding your hand in it. You know. Yes, and I obviously we did it. I I wound up getting a separate therapist who also was um, had experience in trauma and EMDR, and it it was a it's a, a way of for a while I had these intrusive thoughts all the time. I kept seeing Peter's body and his face, especially that was a very disturbing sight, and um, I just I would shake my head to try to get rid of it. And EMDR for whatever reason, and I'm not sure they're 100 percent certain how it works or if they're 100 percent certain about how anything works, but. He uses bilateral movement. So in my case, it was a light 
a light board and a light that went back and forth and my eyes followed it back and forth and back and forth. And as I was following the light, I was thinking about the memories that frightened me the most, that were the most traumatic. And after doing that for a while, those memories felt more like I dreamed them than that, that really visceral, like they were happening at that moment. So it made it a lot easier for me to function day to day because they weren't constantly intruding into my consciousness. I think of it, and I haven't, I haven't had EMDR myself, just okay. been exposed to lots of thoughts about it, but I think of it as sort of a way to process, you know, if, if I think grief has to do with actually experiencing something and then letting it pass out of you, uh, I think of EMDR as that about trauma. Like yeah. you're, you're not avoiding the thing. You're no, going into cool. it and letting it pass through in some way that's very helpful. That's a really nice way to think about it. It does. It becomes kind of a very distant, much more distant for you. I, I, I think with grief, maybe you can let, at some point you can let go and it really does pass through, at least in my experience for this loss. Um, it's, not as tra- it's, not, it's not as scary and traumatic, but it still feels like, um, you know, it's there. It's, it's hard to let go of because there's no... I, I guess it's t- tough to resolve. You know, I, I st- I'm still- not even sure I believe in that, Eileen, resolution. Is there, maybe there isn't. <laughs> it's, it's sort of the same as closure in my book. <laughs> is that nonsense? <laughs> <laughs> could, could, could you share that piece of the book that's really about your process with this loss? Sure. Uh, you know, just what we're talking about right now. Absolutely. Okay. Um, After Peter's death, in the two years I spent tying up the loose ends of his life, I also grabbed a hold of my own loose ends and tried to figure out how to tie those up, too. I did a lot of EMDR therapy, watching that little spot of light travel back and forth across the screen, and I wrote. I wrote down everything I was seeing and feeling and tried to make sense of it on the page, which is the way I tend to process the world around me. I cried a lot. I spent time hiking alone, walking the beach near what used to be Peter's house, thinking. I leaned heavily on my friends for support and understanding. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross famously defined five stages of grief, but mine hasn't followed such an organized trajectory. Instead, I feel many things, anger, relief, sadness, disbelief, fear, anxiety, mixed together in different combinations at different times. I can be relieved at the peacefulness of my life without Peter and at the same time miss him, especially when one of our children reaches a new milestone, our son's high school graduation, our daughter's 21st birthday. Yet as the anger I felt after Peter's death abates, I feel, as strange as it might sound, as if there is more space inside me. Without him physically in my life anymore, I'm not always playing defense. I no longer have to brace myself for whatever intellectual condescension or financial bullying or irrational behavior he is going to sling my way. Instead, My head fills with memories and reflection and a deep sadness. Every time I'm out hiking in the woods, marveling at how beautiful it is, I also think of Peter, of how much he would like it. I had never gone camping until I met him, never hiked a mountain trail. He loved the wilderness, especially the woods of upstate New York. I was driving in that direction recently on a cold, rainy autumn day. The air was heavy and misty, the trees hanging onto their last few leaves. I stopped at a gas station and saw across the barely paved road, a couple of double wide trailer homes. After I paid, I sat in the driver's seat crying. God, I miss him, I thought. But I think what I miss most is something Peter and I had so little of, 
a loving, mutually supportive, I've got your back and you've got mine kind of relationship. The opportunity for that existed back then in our early years together, along with our naivete about all the way things could and would go wrong. Our future had loomed large and thrilling to us, and it would be a long time before we, saw it, before we knew anything about the complications of life as a married couple, as parents, as people in midlife, mid-career, midstream. You know, I've had it said to me and experienced in a few, in a few cases, um, the following, which some people find illog illogical, their death improved our relationship. <laughs> <laughs> That's what well, I think I about. It, 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 when Peter died, definitely our relationship was, I mean, it, it, his relationships with everyone was, was so difficult, but ours was so difficult. It was, it was, it was like a relief. He was so hard for the, you know, he was a, not a tough guy to be divorced from, but he was so hard the last year and a half. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then at the same time, I can imagine, you know, when I think of my sister-in-law, for instance, um, and, and I do a lot. <laughs> wow. um, because it's a very close family and, and I'm very much a part of that family. Um, it's all the things, it's the, it's the last chance of recovery, I guess. Yeah, yeah. It's all the things that if the person had found their way, and I know many people in recovery, so that's a very that's real a thing yeah, to me. Thing. Yeah, it's, it's such a, a painful loss, almost a waste. It can feel that way sometimes, that's, that's yes? That's exactly right. It's like, oh, my gosh, the, the things you could have done and seen and been and the person you could have been. But, yeah. And how amazing it would have been, for instance, for your kids to watch him recover. Uh, absolutely. It would have Such been. a different thing than, than having to deal with this. the loss of someone. vulnerable in a way, and... Until he died, it was like, dad can die? Because he was so powerful in their lives and just, you know, the type of guy who never would go to therapy. He was like, please, yeah, I don't have time for that, you know. Mm. But I think he really wanted Anything but that. <laughs> I'm not going to face myself, you know. And, but I think if he had gone through a recovery process, it would have been be a beautiful thing for them and, and hopefully a wonderful thing for him. So maybe in these last few minutes, I would love to hear, I, I appreciate that this book was largely your story, your story of your relationship with him, his death. Um, but I wonder at this point, uh, it's, it's clear to me what has come out of this experience for you. Uh, you could probably say it better than I, but you kind of plumbed the depths and um, I don't know if you were already thinking about social work, but you've gotten a social work degree. You've written the book. Um, you've done a ton of research. It seems like your the book could really help people understand a little better. You know, what do you think about your kids? How does this impact their lives now? Good and ill. You know, it goes yeah. both directions, doesn't and it? I think it. You know, I. As we get further out, I think it's, I thought it would just stop being a big factor, but I think it just changes. I think for my daughter, for a while, she was still trying to please her father and the choices she was making. You know, she was planning on going to law school, getting an MBA, maybe, you know, all things that Peter would have um, 
been impressed by and given her a lot of validation for. And we had a lot of conversations where I would say, you know, you need to choose for yourself and not for what dad would have wanted or what you think he would have wanted. And I think that was a learning process for her. Um, but, you know, there's an enormous amount of sadness and fear that, um, that she'll lose other people that are close to her. I think they, I understood after uh, Peter died, this was a pretty normal response, but my daughter especially became terrified that I was going to die next. So every, you know, she's constantly checking right. where I was and um, she, you know, she's much better about that now, but she still checks in a lot. Mm-hmm. And my son, you know, I think for him, it's been hard because he was young and he, it was like he was really vulnerable and this person that he looked up to and didn't give him enough time really then kind of just left him. And, you know, I think it, it, I think it takes some time then, you know, to learn to trust other people that not everybody's going to leave you if you are open with them and honest with them and trust. Yeah. I'm sure. And he, and he didn't have as many years with Peter. Well, relatively well. Exactly. I think by the time he was about 15, Peter was probably using, um, and that, yeah, maybe even 14 and a half. And my son really, so, you know, it's kind of hard. He doesn't really, didn't really have much of a model of how to be a man in the world, how mm. to show up like that. And so he's, he's having to figure that out. Well, I know, I know with my children, which is why I asked the question, uh, yes, some anxieties, you know, one of my kids is, for instance, extremely germaphobic, <laughs> but but also sort of a a sense of um, life's important. You know, yeah. don't skip it, <laughs> kind of feeling. Exactly, exactly, right. Yeah, yeah. So it goes in two directions at once, huh? It does. I was going to say one of the things we also decided as a family, almost right after he died, is that we would not lie to each other. So we kind of had this fact, we're like, no lying, we don't hold things from each other because we were all so lied to that we just felt like we need to be honest with each other no matter what, even if it hurts. So oh, that's a, that's, a, that's a wonderful place to end our time together. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for joining me on the show, Eileen. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. And please go find Eileen Zimmerman at EileenZimmerman.com, E-I-L-E-N-E. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America.